Please turn with me in your Bibles to our our text this morning, which comes once again from Paul's letter to the Galatians. As we continue along in our study, we'll be looking at Galatians chapter 3 and verses 15 to 18. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 18. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 18. Please, brothers and sisters, and hear with me the reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Now, our text this morning presents uh, some challenges for us in, in many respects. Uh, there are various interpretations of, of these verses, especially as we get into the, the details, and it's, it's hard to find many interpreters, many scholars, many commentators who, who find total agreement on, on what these things mean. Um, I think, though, that, that what can be agreed upon, though, is the, is the overarching thrust of Paul's argument, right? What can be agreed upon is at least the, the big picture, and that is this, that the blessings of God, justification, right, the Spirit, they do not come as a result of works, but rather they come as a result of, of faith, faith in the promise. Right? Paul consistently, doesn't he, makes this point over and over again because the Judaizers have come in and are teaching that law observance is necessary. It's a necessary requirement for right standing before God in addition to Christ. And so Paul makes clear that that nothing but faith justifies the sinner. And to add works to faith is to make void the cross. It is to do away with the grace of the cross for you. It is to make it of no profit. Because it's a denial. It's a rejection. That the work of Christ was was sufficient. And that it was an all-sufficient work that He has done as Christ gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Right? Example after example, right? Paul makes this point. It's so clear in our text, isn't it? In Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ. In Galatians 3, 2, Paul asked, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? The obvious answer was what? Faith. He continues in chapter 3, verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Even there, what is he asking them to do? He's saying, remember your own experience. And when you do, you will recognize that what I'm saying is true. Paul also did what? He caused, he caused all of them to, to, to look to the example of, of another as well in Galatians chapter 3. 
right? To make this point even more clear, right? He, he used that example of, of Abraham, who, who the Jews took much pride in, right? To demonstrate what? Well, to call into question their own understanding of the Old Testament and their own understanding of Abraham. Because why? He, he demonstrates that Abraham was not justified by the works of the law, but Abraham himself, according to Genesis 15, verse 6, which is quoted in Galatians 3, verse 6, believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And based on this, Paul concluded then that, that it is only those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That is all people though, isn't it? Right? Jew and Gentile alike, all who are of faith, are blessed along with Abraham, who is the man of faith. Right? Paul saying, you Gentiles, then do not have to become Jews before you become Christians. Right? That's, that's not what is required. And then over the past couple weeks, Paul has gone on to show, in fact, that, that the law is not of faith, actually, anyway. Right? That with respect to our justification, right, the law is opposed. Right? The law is opposed to faith. And he demonstrates that using the Old Testament, doesn't he? Right? To, to demonstrate that if you seek to live by the law, you will eventually die by the law. Right? Because he says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by everything written in the law and do it. Right? Paul shows that to, to violate one of the laws in seeking to obtain life by it is to throw yourself underneath that curse. But this is the good news, brothers and sisters. So we read right last week, that although we all stand under the curse because of sin, that Jesus Christ came to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, so that all people could receive those, those blessings which Abraham himself received, which comes through faith. Now, as we approach our text today, then, what Paul's going to do is he's going to continue to dispel this false notion of the Judaizers. Right? That, that, any aspect of our inheritance can come through observance of the law as a means to be blessed. And he, he does this then coming at it from a different angle though now. Right? He, he approaches it from a, a different point of view that he hasn't yet before in our text. And that is by demonstrating which came first. Right? That's his argument now. Which came first? The promise or the law? And what he's going to say is the promise came first. Right? The Abrahamic covenant came before the Mosaic. A Mosaic law of the Mosaic Covenant came far later after the Abrahamic Covenant. And then to demonstrate that this Mosaic Covenant that comes after the Abrahamic cannot annul what has already been promised, what does he do? He turns our attention to, to what we know about man-made covenants to prove his point. Right, look at verse 15 again with me. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's making an argument from the lesser to the greater, isn't he? He's saying if, if once a man-made covenant has been ratified, or that word can also mean confirmed, right? Once a, once a man-made covenant has been confirmed, right, there's nothing that we can now do to, to, to annul it, right? to, to change it, to alter it, to add to it. And if that's true of a man-made covenant, how much more so a divine one? Right? If you can't change a man-made covenant, you can't change a divine covenant. And we have many examples of, of human covenant making in Scripture, don't we? And so the, the Judaizers and all of those in the churches of Galatia would have understood Paul's argument here. 
Uh, you can think of Genesis 29, uh, Jacob and Laban, right? An example of, of a man-made covenant there. You can think of 1 Samuel and even in 2 Samuel, the, the covenant con, uh, contracted between uh, Jonathan and David, which is referenced as the, the covenant of friendship, right? And we see that covenant referenced time and time again. So this was a, a common understanding of all people that when someone uh, by their own will consents or agrees upon something with another, that they are going to make this commitment between two parties, that no one is able to come along then and change that. right? Make it void. Cancel it. And so Paul uses this example then to, to set up his argument, which is this, that the Mosaic Covenant, which came 430 years after the Abrahamic one did, likewise is incapable of undoing what God already promised to Abraham and to his seed. That God had already showed to Abraham that justification comes by faith. Right? God had already declared to Abraham that the justification of the Gentiles would likewise come by faith. And so, no succeeding arrangement that comes after it can contradict God's stated purpose in the giving of this promise. It can't change it. It can't annul it. Once it has been confirmed, once it has been ratified. This leads us, though, to then look at our first point this morning. And we only have two this morning. Our first point will be this. We'll call it the, the promised seed. The promised seed. Look at verse 16 with me, please. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, one of the issues what we need to see Paul dealing with is that he is dealing with the misconception of the Judaizers uh, concerning what is promised and to who was it promised. Right? He's dealing with their misconception of what in fact was promised and to whom it was promised to. Right? You see, the Judaizers believe that the promises that God made to Abraham, the promise for uh, descendants as vast as, as the, the sand of the sea or the stars in the sky, that promise to, to grant to them the possession of, of that earthly land Canaan, the, the promise to, to be a blessing to the nations, they believed all of those promises were theirs. And the way they thought then that God would bless the nations right, was through Israel and through their, their law-keeping. You would see Israel and you would follow after the example of Israel. But there was an issue with their understanding of the Abrahamic covenant because they confounded all the promises, right, believing that they all were for them. But Paul's point is that only two of them really were for the physical descendants of Abraham. Right? Only two have, have reference to his physical descendants and the third one did not. Right? Paul's point is, is that something is different about that third promise. Which is why in Galatians 3, that's the only promise that he references. Right? He only references, he, he singles out that one amongst them all. Now you might say, well as we read it says, now the promises were made to Abraham. So that must be talking about all of the promises, does it not? 
Well, the answer is no. The promises refer to simply the repetition of that singular promise that God had made to Abraham. Right? He told him from Genesis 12 to 22, he kept saying the same promise, that through your seed, right, the nations would be blessed. It's a repetition of the same promise. We might ask, so where do we get the idea then, though, that we can separate these promises out? Right? They all belong to the Abrahamic covenant. How can you say two are for the physical seed and, and one is for something else, else other than the physical seed? Well, the answer comes from Genesis itself. We see the angel of the Lord do this very thing as he describes the promises of the covenant to Abraham. Look at Genesis 22 with me real quick, please. Genesis chapter 22 Look at verse 17. Genesis 22, verse 17. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Well, you say, well, that same word offspring is used of, of all of those promises. How are you differentiating them still? Well, here's one of the problems that I talked about with the text is, is that word offspring. Because that word offspring can mean three different things, can't it? Right? The word offspring can be talking about all of, of Abraham's descendants. The word offspring could be talking about just a class of Abraham's descendants. Could just be talking about the elect, maybe, or the, or the spiritual seed. We actually see this in Scripture. We have an example of that. Look at Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So who's he talking about there? All of his physical descendants, right? You're not a descendant of Abraham, a child of Abraham, just by being a physical descendant, just by being a part of his offspring. But look at the very next verse. This means that it is not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. So see, there's a class of his descendants that are called offspring. But then there's a third way that we can use the word offspring. Look at Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. So there, what is it referring to? Just one single descendant. And so do you see the, the issue with interpreting offspring? Is that no matter which of the three you're talking about, you're using the word offspring for it. 
And so the question becomes, well then, how do you know which offspring we ought to be thinking about for each promise? Well, ultimately, brothers and sisters, the, the context right, of the passage ought to tell us those things. Interpreting Scripture with Scripture ought to tell us those things. And so, I don't think there's any disagreement amongst anyone, really, that, that those first two promises were surely for the, the physical descendants of Abraham. Right? The, the being made as, as, as vast as the sand of the sea and, and inheriting the, the promise of Canaan, that wasn't about a single descendant, was it? No, because we, what do we see? We see it actually fulfilled in the physical nation, don't we? Right? Those promises, if you didn't know, they already were fulfilled. Joshua, for example, chapter 21. Joshua 21 tells us this. Joshua 21, verses 43 to 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that He swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as He sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. So the land promise, the land promise has been fulfilled. Okay, well, well what about the, the descendants? Did the, did that promise get fulfilled? Well, 1 Kings chapter 4. Right? 1 Kings chapter 4. Verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea. Right? So we see that, that those two promises right, were made corporately, weren't they? Right? They were made to the physical descendants of Abraham. They were clearly corporate. But then we ask, well, why in interpreting this, this third promise do we interpret it in a singular manner to a single descendant of Abraham? And ultimately, the answer is because Paul does. Right? Paul is the divine author who is interpreting Genesis 22. And how does he interpret Genesis 22? And that third promise, as different from the other two. Right? That's the point he's making. This is why also in earlier in Genesis chapter, excuse me, Galatians chapter 3 verse 8, it's the same promise that he's, that he's referencing in, in, in 16. In Galatians 3 8, in the, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. Right? In talking about the inheritance and the blessing, all he's talking about is that third promise there. And that's the exact same thing that's being referenced here in verse 16, that, that third promise. Right? He's making the point, this one is not like the other two. Right? The other two have already been fulfilled in the natural descendants of Abraham. Right? What he's doing, what we need to see that he's doing, is making an a, a intra-Abrahamic distinction amongst the promises. The first two he accomplished with the physical seed because that's whom they were made to, the physical seed. But that is not the case with the third. It's not the case with this third promise. The promise does not refer to all of Abraham's descendants. 
but rather to one particular descendant, one particular offspring, who is Christ. And so it is Christ alone who is the singular descendant who will come to bless all nations and reverse the curse. But I want us to also see this, that what is promised to Abraham is the exact same thing promised to our first parents in the garden. Do you remember after they, they fell and, and God comes and He speaks to the serpent and He speaks to our first parents? And in Genesis 3.15, what does He say? The seed of the woman is going to crush the seed of the serpent. Who is the seed of the woman? Is that a, a corporate seed? It's a singular seed. It's the same promise now, confirmed again in the Abrahamic covenant. All we're told though with the progressive revelation is more about that seed. That Abraham is going to be his father. That he is going to come from Abraham's loins and he will be the one who will bless the nations. And Scripture makes it clear, doesn't it, that this began to be fulfilled in the birth of Christ. Begins to be fulfilled in the birth of Christ. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's making that very point. That third promise is being fulfilled now in the birth of Christ. That's my spot. You see then that Christ is that promised seed from whom all the nations would be blessed. Uh, the, The blessing of the nations was never contingent upon law keeping. Right? It was always faith in the promise. Right? Always faith in the promise. Right? What was true of Abraham and how he was justified is true then for, for every one of us. And no law, right? No covenant that comes after that can it disannul it, right? Can change it, can take it away. Right? There's only, and always only been one way of salvation, right? Through faith in Christ. For the saints in the old covenant, though, it was looking forward to the coming of Christ through believing the promise. Right? For us now, it's looking back on the Christ who has already come, fulfilling the promise. But this could only be if the Messiah took upon Himself our nature. Right? He had to assume to Himself our flesh in order that He be truly a son of Abraham. This is why, brothers and sisters, and when we consider this time of year, when we consider what's right around the corner, we ought to thank God Remembering how truly necessary it was for Christ to come in the flesh. How truly necessary it was for the eternal Word to, to become man. And what it meant for Him. Right? We ought to, to think about that. What, what did it mean for Him? That the eternal Word of God had to conceal His glory, had to, had to hide it behind His assumed humanity for us so that men would not see His deity. That's what He did when He came. Right? He who was above all things and all men came down below. He who was esteemed highly was counted as not significant at all by men. He who was rich in glory came down to be poor for our sake. All of these things He did for us, but He had to do them. If He had not done them, Abraham, you and I will have believed in vain. But God's promises never fail. And Abraham trusted that. Right? He trusted in the faithfulness of God. He, he trusted in the power of God. 
And that faithfulness and power of God is seen in bringing forth the incarnate Christ. Right? To secure the blessings that He promised through Him ultimately by crucifying Him upon that cross for us. But that redemption, as we said earlier in the reading of the Gospel, right? that redemption starts at conception. That redemption starts in His mother's womb. But His work of salvation continues all the days of His life and finally culminates right, in what He accomplished upon the cross. But the blessings that you and I receive would have never arrived if Christ did not arrive in the flesh for us. Right? So let's thank God that Christ did, that He arrived in the flesh for us, that this Christ who was set apart to receive the promise came and did all that He had to do that He might now apply those promises to us. That we might be the recipients and the beneficiaries of all that was promised to Christ. Let us see this though also, that, that although Christ provides the blessings, our enjoyment in those blessings is dependent upon being in Christ. Right? Your enjoyment of them is dependent upon you being in Christ. If only the Jews understood that. And if only they understood that. That even the promise in the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant itself looked beyond itself to something far greater. It looked beyond this nation to the nations. That's what we see in the promise. The blessing, yes, would come from from this nation, but it was to come to all nations. If the Jews understood that, perhaps they would not take such pride in their national identity, understanding that they were established as a people and God covenanted with them for the sake of all people, not just for them themselves. That was His ultimate purpose. They were preserved as a people. They were set apart. They were maintained as that people. Protected by God in order that He might secure that physical lineage from which Christ was going to come. From whom He was going to come and then bless the nations. Isn't that in fact the the very mystery that Paul talks about? In Ephesians chapter 3. Turn with me there, please. Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. Of this Gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though I am am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. That's the point. God has always had one purpose, one plan. It was 
spoken in that first proclamation of the Gospel in Genesis 3.15 and by further revelation spoken Genesis 12, Genesis 15, 17, 22, ultimately in the New Testament, in the Gospel. This was the plan from all ages, but progressively revealed, but now made known to us all that this was always God's plan. One people comprised of Jew and Gentile alike, but everyone who believes in the name of Christ. This leads us into our second point this morning. We'll call this one, How the Inheritance Comes. How the Inheritance Comes. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me, please. Paul says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, here's another difficult part of the interpretation of this text. Um, People will read this text and will conclude that that really what is being contrasted here is the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. What's being contrasted is is ultimately then the nature of the two covenants. So if Mosaic is law, uh, Abrahamic is characterized by promise, then the Abrahamic Covenant must be a covenant of grace. They see one is spoken of law, one is spoken of promise. They equate promise with grace. And based on that language being contrasted, right, they make that same contrast in their minds between those two covenants. But I submit to you that that is too simplistic of reasoning. And in fact, any rudimentary study of covenants um, will come to the realization that every covenant is based on promise. Think about it. The covenant of works with Adam is based on promise. Right? Promised eternal life through obedience. Right? Every covenant is based on promise. So we can't just be so quick to jump to a conclusion because we read the word law and promise. Perhaps the better thing to do would be to ask ourselves, how is Paul using the language of promise in this letter? Is he using it to try to tell us what is the nature of the Abrahamic covenant? Or is he using it in verses 17 and 18 consistently with how he's been using it in verse 16 and in verse 8? Which is using it to speak of only a singular promise. The one promise made to Abraham in this covenant. And so what Paul is doing I think the better way to understand is is not to to see him as telling us what type of covenant the Abrahamic covenant is, but rather it makes much more sense with the flow of the argument to see that all he is saying is simply this. If the inheritance is based on a law that comes 430 years after the promise, then it can't be based on Christ. But the fact remains God first gave it to Abraham by promise, and so it remains by promise. We too often forget that circumcision, that circumcision that the Judaizers are pressuring these Gentile converts to get is not Mosaic. It's Abrahamic. It's Abrahamic. See, people forget that. And what's true about those, though, who get circumcision? Galatians chapter 5, verse 3. 
I testify again that every man that accepts circumcision, that they are obligated to keep the whole law. You know what that circumcision meant? You must keep the whole law. It's no coincidence that in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is talking about the Abrahamic covenant, you know what he calls it? He doesn't call it a covenant of grace. He calls it a covenant of circumcision. It's a covenant of circumcision. right? In verse 8 of chapter 7, And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Any member of that covenant who was not circumcised received what? Covenant curses. Wasn't that what Moses was going to receive because he did not circumcise his son? In Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 to 26. Additionally, I, I think this is a point oftentimes overlooked. Perhaps it hasn't been heard. Perhaps some of you know. But if you read Genesis 17, go through it sometime. In the beginning, you know, he, he gives the I will, I will, I will. I think it's starting at verse 9. He turns to Abraham and says what? He says, right, you shall keep my covenant. He says, um, this is my covenant that you shall keep, that every male among you shall be circumcised. Let me ask you when, you, when you hear Abraham say, you shall keep my covenant, what does it make you think of? Would it surprise you that the same word there is the same word used in Genesis 2 in the covenant of works that God made with Adam? The exact same word when he told Adam, I place you in this garden and now you are to work and to keep it. The exact same words. All of that then to say, ultimately, brothers and sisters, I want us to understand, Abrahamic covenant is not the covenant of grace. It's not the covenant of grace. It's a covenant of circumcision based on works. But it contains a promise, doesn't it? But the promise is specifically to Abraham that you will be a father of the Messiah who will bless the nations. That's the promise. Again, the fact that a promise is in the Abrahamic covenant says nothing to us about the nature of the Abrahamic covenant. Because there's a promise in the covenant of works made with Adam and yet, it's a covenant of works. Right? So we need to see, as we look at verses 17 and 18, as we consider them, all Paul is trying to say is, is ultimately, do you receive this inheritance through works or through the promised Messiah? That's the point he's trying to make. Do you receive them through works the promised Messiah? And the promise of the Messiah came first. The works can't annul it. It's through the promise of the Messiah. Right? That's the answer. Through Him and only Him. Only through the promised Messiah, not through works, shall all people be justified. If we could be justified through the works of the law, then why did Christ come? Why did Christ suffer? Why did Christ die? But God graciously justified Abraham through the promise. The promise of Christ, not the law. Why? To demonstrate to all of us that that is the exact same way that we all will be justified. Just like Abraham. Through the promise of Christ, not through the works of the law. We need to see that the Abrahamic covenant promised the covenant of grace. But it was not it. It promised the covenant of grace. It was not it. The Abrahamic covenant did not promise to change your heart and remember your sins no more. That's not what the covenant did. But it did promise that 
Christ would come from it, who would establish a covenant that would do those very things. That's the new covenant that was promised in the Abrahamic, but not legally established until it was confirmed by the death of Christ. This is what we're told by the author to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Paul is saying, since this has happened, Judaizers, saints in the churches of Galatia, stop turning back to Moses. See that Abraham, see that Moses, those covenants were subservient to the new covenant. They were subservient to the covenant of grace. They served them. Abraham promised Christ. Moses prepared you for Christ. The new covenant brings you Christ. And so he's saying, don't look back to Moses. Right? The history of redemption has moved forward. Look at the reality. Look what you have now set before you. See, though, that Christ's mission then as an Israelite and as a seed of Abraham, though, comes in the context of those earthly covenants that God made with the nation of Israel, didn't it? This is why later in our study in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, we'll read this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Jesus came under that law and fulfilled its demands that He might be able to to grant us freely salvation in the new covenant. That He might be able to to freely give to us the, the new creation inheritance that He has won. This is why the New Testament, or excuse me, the New Covenant is so much better than, than every covenant before it. Because it accomplished what the blood of bulls and goats could never do, right? It, it cleanses for sin one time and once and for all. Anyone who ever received these blessings then, whether that be Abraham or you and I, we receive them th- through the New Covenant. Right? Abraham believed in the promise of the New Covenant. We are saved by the the establishment now of the, the legal establishment of the new covenant. But it's always on the basis of that covenant. It's always on the basis of the, of the promises of that covenant. That's why Abraham can be justified. Right? It was on the basis of Christ's righteousness through faith. Right? Believing the promise. And through faith, right? he received that inheritance, didn't he? Right? Through faith, Abraham received adoption as a son. Uh, through faith, Abraham received the Spirit. He received assurance. He received peace with God. Under the Abrahamic covenant, under the Mosaic covenant, you could be exiled from those covenants through disobedience. Through the new covenant, it promises and gives preservation and perseverance, which is what Abraham, which is what Abraham himself had. In the new covenant, and by faith, we receive also as blessings of the inheritance, resurrection, and glorification. Right? Jesus says that the Father has, has given me these people. Right? I will raise them up on the last day and I will lose none. Right? Jesus conquered death. He conquered the grave. He was raised up. Now is exalted as high. King over heaven and earth. Which is a promise to us that we too will one day be raised and be glorified with Him. 
The new covenant then is the covenant of works fulfilled by Christ. The new covenant is the covenant of works fulfilled by Christ. And because He fulfilled it, He is now able to mediate all of its benefits to everyone who believes. To seek then to obtain this inheritance any other way is to exclude yourself then from the inheritance. This is Paul's point then to the Judaizers. This is what they are doing. They are excluding themselves from the inheritance. This is what the saints in the churches of Galatia are in danger of, excluding themselves from the inheritance. May you and I never exclude ourselves from that inheritance. May we all see the need to rest by faith in the promise of God, right? just as Abraham did. Right? See that if, if the promise was to Christ, then you must get into Christ to receive all that is promised. And when Christ becomes yours, consider, brothers and sisters, all that becomes yours with it. Right? His life, His Spirit, His death, His resurrection, His glory, all becomes yours through faith. That is the inheritance that is spoken about. Recognize also the difference then between the, the law and the promise. Right? The, the law requires a condition of obedience in order to attain life. But it is a, a burden far too great a task far too heavy for any one of us to ever handle. But the promise says this. It says, I both offer and give to you right? what I promise, apart from anything that you might do, but simply by receiving this gift right, through faith in Christ. As William Perkins says with respect to our justification, the law and the promise cannot be mixed any more than fire and water. Does that make sense? Right, what, do you say? What, is, what, what will water do to the fire? It will put it out. So what is he saying? That we can't add the law to the promise or else you're going to do away with it. You're going to put it out. Right? Let us never do that. And so we have to ask ourselves today as we start to draw to a close. Right? Are you seeking that inheritance through works? Or even through works and faith? Or are you seeking that inheritance through simply looking to and trusting in the promise of God? Right? The promise of Christ and all that He would secure for you. Is that which Abraham received and enjoys what you now receive and enjoy, at least in part? If it is, if so, if your faith follows after the pattern of Abraham, if you are justified in the same manner as Abraham, then we can take courage. We can be comforted knowing that Christ has promised to you and I that one day we shall dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And there you will enjoy the greatest portion of that inheritance which is to come. And that is being confirmed for all of eternity in your perfected natures and then seeing the glory of God in the face of of the person of Jesus Christ Himself. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful and thankful for Your Word. Uh, We thank You, Lord, that by the Spirit You enable us to to parse through such uh, difficult and sometimes uh, trying uh, meanings. Lord, we we pray that You would uh, humble us, that You would submit us to Your Word, that that we would be open for uh, teaching and correction. Uh, We ask, Lord, that you would help 
uh, help us to understand this text better in, in light of what Paul has said. Uh, that we would, like Abraham, not seek to be justified through any other covenant dealings. That we would not seek to be justified through the keeping of the law, but rather simply through faith in Christ. The, the, the Christ that is presented to us uh, in the new covenant. right Through the, the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, Lord, we ask you that you would help to guard our hearts and guard our minds. Uh, we are so quick to make addition to the gospel. Uh, we are so quick to, to judge ourselves and others by uh, our deeds. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to judge with right judgment, uh, to ultimately see that uh, one is saved apart from the works of the law. But yet at the same time, Lord, that you would make us uh, those who are zealous right, for good works, that we might uh, serve you. For this is a reason that we have been set apart as the workmanship of Christ Jesus, that we might glorify you in everything that we think, say, and do. And so, Lord, we come before you this day, and we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.